Well, man, we are so excited that you're here today. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. I'm the teaching pastor. And uh, you just heard from Cecil a little earlier. Cecil's doing baptisms, our executive pastor. We are so excited you're here today. Um, it was raining when you got up, and you were like, you know what, man, I, I could stay in bed. Come on, the devil was talking to you. Come on, stay in bed in that rain. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's raining outside, and I'm like, Andrew, I don't want to go. She's like, you have to go. You're the pastor. I'm like, all right, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. No, but, uh, man, we're so excited you're here. It's a great-looking crowd. Big welcome to all the family and friends who are here to support uh, people that you love getting baptized. We love the people you love. And so we have that in common, and, and man, we're just so excited for them. We are finishing up the series of Esther today, the book of Esther, the series of Esther. Uh, Esther is a book of the Bible in the Old Testament. It's only 10 chapters long. If you've never read it, uh, even if you're not a big Bible reader, I would encourage you to read the book of Esther. I think you'll, I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's been a great uh, book for us to study. Um, hopefully, you've had a chance to be here for some of that. If not, let me kind of just catch you up real quick. I'm going to give you the cliff notes, just the, I mean, the, the Wikipedia, the, the quick one here, all right? The book of Esther is about a guy named Mordecai and a girl named Esther. She is his niece. They live in a town called Susa. Everybody say Susa. They live in a town called Susa, which is a, a it's actually a country. It's not a town. It's a province of the Babylonian Empire under a guy named King Xerxes, King Xerxes is a weird-looking dude in the movie 300, but that's him, all right? That's the guy, and he is the king of Babylon, and uh, he gets mad at his wife one day because she kind of gives him a little attitude, and he kicks her out and says no, and so somebody comes to King Xerxes and says, hey, why don't you get a new queen? Let's have like a beauty contest. Let's get all the, the young girls here in, the, in, in, the, in all the, the provinces, bring them in, and the king's like, okay, you know, I mean, guy's like, all right, let's do that. So uh, Esther ends up being brought in with, so it uh, ends up being about three or 400 other ladies um, that are brought in in what amounts to a, a year-long beauty treatment to help her prepare to go in and to, to really, for like a tense of put the earmuffs on the little kids, sleep with the king is pretty much what she's doing. And, uh, and so God kind of opens some doors and providentially um, allows Esther, kind of opens the opportunity for Esther to be queen. All right, Esther to be queen. And, uh, but no one knows that she's a Jew. No one knows that Esther's a Jew because Mordecai said, don't say anything about it. Um, just kind of blend in. And so she blends in. And, um, and that's kind of Esther chapter 1, 2, and 3. There's a guy named Haman. Haman, uh, he hates uh, all Jewish people. And uh, he hates this guy named Mordecai. And he really hates Mordecai because he's Mordecai, but he also hates Mordecai because Mordecai is a Jewish person. And so um, Haman goes into the king one day, King Xerxes, and Haman was like second in power. And he goes into King Xerxes and he says, listen, I want all of the Jewish people to be killed and I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. But I want us to send out a law that says all Jewish people are killed. And King Xerxes was very easily influenced. And he's like, all right, let's do it. So they write down this law and they send it out to all the provinces and the law says that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all non-Jewish people can get weapons and kill Jewish people. All right? So this is not your fairy tale. This is going to get kind of crazy here pretty fast. And so they send this out. Word goes out. And it's, not, it's, it's like three or six months away before this can happen. And the analogy we've been using is it's bad enough that the Jews are going to be killed, but they got to now think about it. It's like when you were growing up and your dad was like, I'm going to spank you when I get home. You know the spanking's going to hurt. 
But you got to think about it all day. How many people know what I'm talking about? Now, some of y'all didn't get spanked, all right? We know. We knew early on when we met you, you didn't get spanked as a child, all right? But some of us did. And when Dad came home, it was barehanded. It wasn't, you know, I mean, you know, some of y'all got twigs and belts. We just got this right here. And, uh, and you're trying to fall asleep at 4 in the afternoon thinking, hey, I can trick him, you know. He, that's not going to work. And you're putting on extra layers. You're doing whatever you can. But you got to think about it all day long. Dad's coming home. And then your mom's like, well, your dad gets home, you know, and you're thinking about it, you know. Well, that's what's happening to the Jewish people. They're thinking about it. And they're heartbroken. And they're, and they're, and, and they're wondering, is God going to do something? And they're praying, and they don't know what's going to happen. All the whole time, here is Queen Esther. And she's a Jewish person, but nobody knows it. And so uh, Mordecai gets word to Esther. And she says, uh, and he says, you got to do something. And Esther chapter 4, a very famous passage of Scripture, uh, Queen Esther says, I don't know what I can do. And he says, who knows, but that God did not put you in the palace for such a time as this. It's kind of the famous verse of, of the book of Esther. And so she goes into the king and she says, hey, I want you to have dinner with me. You and Haman, come and have dinner. And, and so they do dinner and, he, she, and they says, what do you want? You know, what are you going for? And she says, come back and have another dinner. And so a long story short about the dinner, they, they end up having the dinner. And she says, King Xerxes, and King Xerxes loves Esther, loves her. She's beautiful, and he's just infatuated with Esther. And so, like most guys who get infatuated, he says, hey, whatever you want, whatever you can have, whatever you want, right? And, and she says, someone is trying to kill me and my people. And Xerxes is so in love with Esther, he's, he's angry. Who? Who would do this? And she says, that guy right there, Haman. So Haman ends up getting killed at the end of chapter 7. He ends up getting killed, and that's where we ended uh, last week. All the way up to chapter 7, into chapter 7, Haman has now been killed, and we have King Xerxes and Mordecai and Esther um, left. Now, Esther, we're going to cover Esther chapter 8, 9, and 10. We're ending the book today, 8, 9, and 10, and these are not the easiest books of the Bible to teach, because Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10 are all about war, holy war, and, and, and just destruction and, and all sorts of just that stuff. And then it's about people throwing parties to celebrate war, death, and destruction. So it's not, you know, it's not, you're not seeing Esther's 8 through 10 on any, you know, encouraging motivational Bible calendars on your desk, right? It's not one of those types of setups, right? And at, at like a surface level, if somebody was just reading, Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10, if you were just kind of reading through it, you would be, maybe you would think that the takeaway from Esther 8, 9, and 10 is to find God's enemies and to kill them. And there are people who live nowadays who believe that, that they take certain parts out of Scripture and say that God wants us to be violent or uh, destructive to people who don't agree with us or who don't see things our way. But that's not the message of Esther 8, 9, and 10. That's a very Old Testament type of view and what God did, right? It's not the message of 8, 9, and 10. Esther chapters 8, 9, and 10 are really a metaphor. They're not a parable. They really happen. It's not a fiction story. It really happened. But what you and I learn from it and what you and I take away from it is really some symbolic meaning of what happens in 8, 9, and 10. Now, I don't want to take you back to English class. Some of you guys are out of school. Uh, you know, you haven't been in school in a long time. Some of you are still in school. But I, I want to take you back to English class. So we're going to break this down at its most basic level. We're going to break 8, 9, and 10 and kind of the, the meaning, the metaphor of Esther down to its very basic level, all right? And this is, the very, this is like 
Esther for dummies right here. 101, here we go. Here it is. You ready? Here is the meaning, the metaphor. Haman equals Satan. Haman equals... Everybody say Haman. Haman. Everybody say Satan. Haman. Haman equals Satan. All right? Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Mordecai. Equals Jesus. Everybody say Jesus. That's it. You can pass the Esther test right now. All right? So in case you're at lunch with one of your friends, you know, who wants to know the meaning of Esther 8, 9, and 10, you can drop this knowledge on them right here, okay? Because you maybe get asked that question a lot. I don't know. But you can say, hey, here's the meaning. Haman equals Satan or the devil, and Mordecai equals, equals Jesus. Esther 8, 9, and 10 is really a message about what Jesus Christ did for you and I when he died on the cross, that's what it's about, what Jesus did for you and I when he died on the cross. So Haman, uh, we talked about, and if you were here when Cecil preached on it, Haman, we say, represents Satan. Haman hates God's people. The Jewish people are God's people. And so Haman hates God's people. He can't stand them. He wants to destroy them. And that's exactly how Satan feels about you. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know what you believe particularly about this, but the devil is a real being. Satan is a real being. We have no reason to be intimidated or threatened by him. He has no power even close to God's power, but he is a real being, and he hates you and me. And he doesn't hate you and me because there's, you know, we did something to him. He hates you and me because God loves us. And he hates God so much that he knows the best way to hurt God is to get at you and me. And so in the same way that Haman wanted to destroy God's people, the devil, Satan, wants to destroy you and I. You need to know that. 1 Peter 5 and 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is watching your life and and taking notes on your life, he's not omniscient, he doesn't know everything, so he's just kind of watching you and taking notes, waiting for the opportunity to destroy you, just like Haman was in the story of Esther. And so Haman issues a death sentence. Haman issues a death sentence for all of God's people, just like we have a death sentence on our life. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when, when they ate the apple, from that point forward, there was a death sentence on our life. Now, I know that sounds incredibly dramatic to say that we were born with a death sentence, but it's true. And when you and I were born uh, at the hospital or wherever we were born, for some people in this church, it was in, our, in the parking lot of the hospital, but for a lot of us, it was in a hospital. And, uh, but when we were born, we were born as sinful people. We were born as sinful people. We, we had no way to know God except Jesus. That our lives, uh, we were sin, sinful people. When we got old enough to, to talk, we lied to our parents. When they said, did you eat the cookie? He said, no, I didn't eat the cookie. You, no one had to teach you how to do that. You did that because you're a sinful person. You punched your brother or sister. And they said, did you hit them? And you go, no, I did not. Did not hit them. You're lying. I know you're lying. I am not lying. So my daughter's saying to me right now at five years old, I am not, I promise. I'm like, I know you're lying, right? Nobody had to teach her how to do that. Maybe your mom, I don't know, but I don't think anybody had to teach her how to do that. 
You and I are sinful people. We were born sinful. And if nothing ever changes and we never find a solution to that sinful problem, what is destined for us is hell and death, nothing good, nothing good. But Jesus went to the cross, and he died on the cross for you and I. And when he did that, he created a way for you and I to know God, for you and I to lift the death sentence off of our lives, for you and I to know Jesus and to have a relationship with Jesus on our own. So we're going to read um, Esther chapter 9 together. I'm going to summarize 8 for you here in just a second. I know we're covering a lot of information, but it's just three chapters of the Bible. So I'm going to kind of summarize what happens in Esther 8. And then if you have a Bible, or you you can read it on the screen with me. But we're going to read Esther chapter 9. So we said at the end of Esther chapter 7, Haman has been killed. And at the beginning of chapter 8, Esther goes back in to see King Xerxes. And uh, she's crying, and King Xerxes says, Esther, what's wrong, you know? Uh, what, what can I do for you? Tell me what I can do. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you're like, what, what can I do to get you to stop crying, right? You know what I'm talking about? Don't say yes, but you know what I'm talking about. All right. So he's like, what do you want me to, you know, what can I do? And she says, Re- you know, reverse the law. Reverse the law. Don't let my people die. And Xerxes says, I would love to, but I can't. Because the law, the rule says that once a king makes a law, he cannot take it. I can't take it back. And he says, well, here's what I'll do. I'm going to put Mordecai second in command, second in charge, and I'm going to give Mordecai the king's ring. In other words, he kind of makes Mordecai attorney general. And he says, Mordecai can, can write a new law. He can write a new law, put my, you know, stamp my ring on it, send it out to everybody, and, and, and that'll be what we do. I can't take away the old law, but you can write a new law. And so Mordecai and Esther get together, and Mordecai writes a law that says to all the Jewish people, on the, on the, 12th, or the 13th day of the 12th month, you can defend yourself. You can fight. You don't have to just be killed. You can fight back, and he stamps it with the king's ring, and, and, they, and they, they roll it up, and they, and they send it out to all the provinces, 107 provinces under the Babylonian rule. They send it out to everybody, and they announce it in all the towns that on the 13th day of the 12th month, you can fight. You can fight back. And so now we're going to have a war. Now we're going to have a battle. God has provided a way for the Jewish people to defend themselves. And so we start reading in Esther chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read, uh, let's see here, we're going to read 19 verses together, but Esther chapter 9, verse 1. It says, On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand Uh, over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. So we we see again that God has providentially, providence is just kind of the, the God coincidences that are not coincidences, they're a little more than coincidence, that God opens up opportunities. And so we see that God has providentially 
um, created this platform for Mordecai. Because three chapters earlier, two chapters earlier, no one had ever heard of Mordecai. No one knew who he was. And now God, through Esther, through God's plan, now Mordecai's second in charge. Everybody's afraid of him, right? And so Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. And he became more and more powerful. Verse 5. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And then verse 7 gives us the name of 10 guys that they killed. And these are brutal names to try to pronounce. We're going to go with it anyway. So just this is going to be good for you. You ready? Here we go. They also killed uh, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vazathai. I guess. We'll just go with that. All right, we'll go with that. Poor kids. The ten sons of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay hands on their plunder. And that's a huge verse right there because it kind of gives us some insight into why they're doing what they're doing. The Jews are not fighting here because they're wanting to get more land. They're not fighting because they want to you know, accumulate more wealth or treasure. They are fighting to defend themselves. This is not like, hey, you know, all of the non-Jews, you know, have like gold and big screen TVs in their house. Let's go kill them and take it, all right? This is not that. This is God defending his people. So some people have issue with, you know, war and, and all that through the Old Testament. And I get that. And there are questions there. And we can wrestle with that. I, it's not clean cut. I get that. But this is not people who are just wanting to kill women and children because they want to. They are defending themselves. And this verse kind of shows us that that's what they're doing here, right? Verse 11, the number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king the same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman and Susa. Uh, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will be granted. So he comes back to Esther and says, is there anything else that you want to do? And she says, well, if it pleases the king, if you really love me, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's ten sons be hung on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa and they impelled the ten sons uh, of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of uh, Adar and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on their plunder. So it lets us know again, they're not, this is not for selfish gain. 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's province is also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75 thousand of them but did not lay their hands on their plunder this happened on the 13th day of the month of adar and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy the jews in susa however had assembled on the 13th and the 14th and then on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy and then the last verse this is why rural jews those living in villages observed the 14th of the month of adar as a day of joy and feasting a day for giving presents to each other all right a lot of scripture there, a lot of information being thrown at you today. But here's what you need to know. That God, through Esther and Mordecai, through God's plan, through God's sovereignty, through God's providence, he provided a way for God's people to defend themselves, and not just to defend themselves, but to have victory. That God provided a way for his people to have victory. 
And so what I would like to do for the last few minutes we have left here is I just want to give you three takeaways. Three kind of final summary takeaways from the book of Esther that we can kind of take and apply. We see here in the last few chapters, but more than that, just kind of all throughout the whole book of Esther, three kind of takeaways, if you will, for this story. The first one is this, is that God still does miraculous turnarounds. That God still does miraculous turnarounds. You know, we live in a real, like, cynical society. I am a recovering cynic. Hi, my name is Jason. I've been a cynic for 30 years, right? I'm recovering in my cynicism. It has eaten me alive at times, and by God's grace, I'm, I'm doing better. But we live in this very cynical society, and I think sometimes that bleeds over into our belief about God. And we begin to think that God can't do the things that he used to do, that God's not as powerful as he used to be, that God still doesn't do miracles. You know, we, we're kind of cynical about that, and we, but he does. And the, the book of Esther shows us that God still does miraculous turnarounds. And so I don't know what you're facing today or what your life looks like, but Esther gives us hope that no matter how bad our situation looks or what the report is, listen, when the king of Babylon says you're going to die, that's bad news. That's bad news. This is not some bully on the playground. This is King Xerxes. And so I'm sure the Jews thought it's over. It's over, man. But Esther, the book of Esther, gives us hope that no matter how bad our situation looks or what the report is, God still knows how to reverse what seems like an impossible situation. He knows how to do it. And we could pass around the mic this morning to a lot of you in this room and say, tell me a time when you thought it was over. Tell me a time when you thought your marriage was over. Tell me a time when you thought that someone you loved was going to die. Tell me a time when you thought you weren't going to make it to the next day. And you would begin to tell stories about the miraculous turnarounds that God did in your life. Because God still does it. No matter how bad it seems, God still does it. And listen, he may not heal you. He may not fix your marriage. But we have to look no further than our own lives to see that God still does miraculous turnarounds. We said earlier that you and I were born into sin. We were born as sinful people. A lot of us sometimes think that when we when we start following Jesus, that it's like putting handcuffs on. Like, oh, I don't get to do anything fun anymore. I don't get, you know, it's like, eh, I got to, this is, you know, lame, but whatever. We think we're putting handcuffs on, but it's the exact opposite. That we were born with handcuffs on. And when we accept Jesus Christ, he gives us freedom and he gives us victory, right? And so maybe the most miraculous turnaround that ever happened in your life, or maybe the most miraculous turnaround that, would ever, that could ever happen in your life, is when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart, when you accept Jesus Christ into your life. One of the favorite things that I get to hear and experience around here at the church is when people tell me their story, or maybe they're getting baptized or whatever it is, and I love when they say this. And this is true for, for a lot of you in here. They say, if you would have asked me a year ago, if you were to ask me six months ago, if you were to ask me, you know, whatever, if I would be in church, if I would be following God, if, if I, I mean, if you were to ask me if this was the person I was going to be, I would have laughed 
there's no way I thought that this was even possible. But God does miraculous turnarounds. That's why you and I should never stop praying and believing for that person in our life that we think would never change. For that person in our life that we think would never be open to anything having to do with God or religion. Or, or that would, our relationship would ever get any better. Because the bigger the obstacle, I believe, the more God likes to get involved. God loves to turn hopeless situations around. He loves to turn it around. The second takeaway is this. Is that our decisions affect other people. Our decisions affect other people. Man, if we see anything in the book of Esther, we see that our decisions affect other people. Mordecai's decision to stay in Susa instead of go back to Jerusalem affected a lot of people, right? Esther's decision to not fight back or Esther's decision to not speak up about her uh, religious beliefs while she's in the beauty contest and while she's living in the castle. Some people thought it was the wrong decision. Some people thought that she was selling out or compromising, but her decision affected a lot of people, saved a lot of lives. Haman's decision. Haman's decision to hate God's people and to go after Mordecai affected not just him, but it affected his family. All ten of his sons were killed. Now they may have been just evil guys. I mean, they have been just they may have been just nasty, but we don't know because the Bible doesn't say. One of them may have been like a dentist, just a good guy, you know, with a wife, couple kids, minivan. Many, whatever, that you know what I'm saying? We don't know. One day somebody knocks on his door and says, you're Haman's son, and they kill him. Right? Why? Because our decisions affect other people. And let me just stop for a second. Just a little sidebar here. We're just going to put pause on the sermon. And let me just say for a second to all the men in the room, listen to me, man. I know men historically don't like church. I know men historically don't like God or religion. But will you listen to me for just one second? The decisions that you make affect your family, your kids, your spouse, more than any other person in their life, more than any other decision maker around them. God hardwired you to lead your family spiritually. It's not demeaning to any other gender or any, it's not any of that. It's just that God hardwired you to lead your family spiritually. And the decisions you make carry huge influence on their life. And it may not be as drastic as Haman, you know, trying to kill Christians and your children being killed, but listen, it's not that far off. If you make a decision with your life, men, please hear me. Fellas, if you make a decision with your life to say, I'm going against God. Now listen, you would never say, I'm against God. You would never say, I'm, I'm going against God. You, you're not brave enough to do that, first of all. But second of all, you don't think of it that way. But there's no middle ground. There's no lukewarm. There's no straddling the fence. If you would say, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with God. I'm not for that. I'm not doing that. You are making a decision that could have horrible ramifications for your family. Let me throw a stat at you real quick. The Barna Research Group did some research about families and church. 
And they, what they found out in this research is that uh, if, if a child, if, if a child or a kid is the first person to come, is the only family member coming to church, okay? So a parent drops them off or they come with a friend or whatever, if they come. There is a 14% chance that, that the rest of the family will come to church at some point. If the mom or the wife is the first person to come to church, she comes by herself, she doesn't come with you know, other family members, she comes, or maybe she does, brings her kid, but if a wife comes, that there is a 32% chance that the whole family will come to church together. But the research found that if the man is the one who comes to church, that there is a 91% chance that the family will be in church. Does church solve all your problems? No. No, it doesn't. But it is a great place for you to learn and to grow in your relationship with God. And even if that doesn't happen, and you got to, you know, suck it up and grit your teeth, or, you know, just bite your lip and just hate it, what it will do for your family and your marriage and your parenting is life-changing. So men, listen to me. Let's choose Christ. Let's choose God. If our decisions affect other people, if our decisions have huge influence over our family, then let's be the spiritual leaders of our home. Let's pray with our kids. Let's read Bible stories together. Let's put them in opportunities where they're serving, not where we're dropping them off to serve, but where we get out of the car and we serve with them. Let's come to church together. Let's do it. Because if, if negative decisions, if bad decisions negatively influence our family, then the opposite is true too. The good decisions, godly decisions, will have a positive influence on our family. Our, our decisions affect other people. And I don't want my children to have to pay the price, especially a spiritual price, because I just was stubborn and dug in my hills and didn't want to have anything to do with God. It's on us, guys. It's on us men, okay? And let me give you this. We're running out of time. The last one is this. The last kind of takeaway we get is celebrate what God does in your life. Oh, I'm sorry. let me back up just one second. Guys, I wanted to say one more thing. Sorry, ADD. All right. It's going to be awkward at first. If you're not used to being the spiritual leader of your home, praying with your family, coming to church and them seeing you worship, it's going to be awkward. Like, you're just not going to go home and be like, you know what, guys, I'd like for us to pray together. And the kids are like, yes, Father, pray for me, you know? <laughs> I think how it's going to I'm a pastor of a church, and it's still weird for me to pray with my wife. You know, it's like, like am I supposed to pray like a pastor? Am I, supposed to pray? I don't know what I'm supposed to You know, it's still kind of weird, right? I've got kids who are just not getting to the age where we're doing some devotions together and things like that. It's going to be awkward, but listen, you've never been afraid to do hard things in your life. You enjoy the challenge. Let's take on that challenge, okay? Would have been better and more dramatic if I'd have said it in the right spot, but we'll count it, okay? The last one is this. Celebrate what God does in your life. The book of Esther shows us, as we kind of wrap all this up and kind of tie it together, that you and I should celebrate what God does in our life. Look at what happens 
In Esther chapter 9, we stopped reading, but in 27 and 28 it says, The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Now listen, guys smarter than me, historical scholars, biblical scholars uh, who write books about books of the Bible say that they believe that the main reason the book of Esther is in the Bible is not because of a girl named Esther or a guy named Mordecai. They believe it's in there because it gives us instructions or Jewish people instructions to celebrate the holiday of Purim. In other words, they think that the book of Esther is just a manual on how to throw a party. And that the reason that they're throwing a party is because God spared their life. That they were headed for sure death. God intervened providentially and provided a way for them not to have death, but for them to have victory. And then they said, every year for two days, we're going to throw a party to celebrate and remember What happened on those two days? And not only are we going to throw a party, but we're going to take it upon ourselves to make sure that our kids know why we're throwing the party. And that their kids know. And that their kids know. And did you know that the holiday of Purim is still celebrated today by practicing Jews? That to this day it's still celebrated as a reminder that we were headed for sure death. And God saved us. Now, we weren't headed for sure death from the Babylonian Empire, but we were born headed for sure death. And God, through Jesus slash Mordecai, in this story, intervened on our behalf and saved us and gave us victory. So we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to get excited about Jesus. To get a little bit giddy, to get a little bit pumped up because we were headed for death. And if you view accepting and believing in Jesus Christ as just you being a good person, or if you view it as just you, you know, morally becoming better, then that's not really going to get you that excited because we find out that we still have all of our issues. But if you view believing in Jesus Christ as death, hell, headed for destruction, but Jesus intervened, and now I'm not anymore, and now I have life, that's a reason to get excited. And the responsibility is on us to not let that passion leak out of our heart. And to celebrate. And not just to celebrate, but to tell the story of what God has done in our lives to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. I've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and the two-year-old's not really tracking with me yet on my Bible stuff, but the five-year-old's kind of getting there. She's beginning to ask me questions like, Daddy, what does a pastor do? I'm like, yeah, that's a great question. What does a pastor do? What does a pastor do? Heard jokes my whole life about that, but, you know, I'm kind of a teacher, and I kind of, you know, I help people and, you know, whatever. And she thought that the reason we came to church on Sundays was because daddy was the pastor. That's kind of true, a little bit. But that's not 
I don't want her to think or believe. I want her to know the truth. That's not why we come to church. Sadie, we come to church so that because Christians, believers, the body of Christ is coming together to celebrate Jesus. Celebrating Jesus. And Sadie, I don't just read my Bible because I'm a pastor. I read my Bible because I want to know God. And I don't just sing songs with a guitar because it's 20-minute song time. I'm celebrating because, Sadie, you, this won't make sense to you right now, but Daddy was not good. And Daddy, Daddy was, Jesus saved me. And now I'm going to get to go to heaven. You know where Mimi's at? Yeah, I'm going to get to go and be with her. And I didn't have that chance, but Jesus gave me that chance. And one of these days, she's going to want to know more about that. And she's going to want to know more about that. And I believe she's going to give her heart to Christ, and then she's going to celebrate. And the book of Matthew tells us that when someone gives their heart to Jesus Christ, that heaven throws a party. Heaven throws a party. And listen, we all like to celebrate in different ways, but a lot of us don't really like to celebrate like, you know, like we're, we're kind of embarrassed. Last night I was hanging out with a group of people, and there was a DJ at this event, and he's playing music, you know. And some of the people had had a little much to drink, not particularly our group, but some of the others. And so they were uninhibited, uninhibited, and they were having a good old time, not embarrassed at all, unless somebody got it on their camera phone. But like, then there were those of us like me who were like too cool to really celebrate and dance, you know. So I'm just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to let it go, though. I'm just staying right here, you know, just staying in the zone, right? But something happens from being a kid to an adult, and we're afraid, we're embarrassed to celebrate. And all throughout the Bible, we see people, man, David took off his clothes and started dancing before the Lord. Now, we're not going there. We're not doing that. But they did that. Anytime God would do something, they'd build a statue and say, man, every time you pass this statue, just, man, just do a lap. Celebrate, shout for joy. So that's why we get excited. And it's our responsibility to pass that on to the next generation. Listen, if you're not excited about Jesus, please don't pass that on to the next generation. Don't pass on your rules. Don't pass on your religion. Please, dear God, don't pass on your political hatred. Don't do that. But if you are excited about the fact that you were headed for death and Jesus saved you, and you get a little hop in your step, and you like to lift your hands and worship, and you like to smile and laugh and cry about what Jesus has done in your life, why don't you tell that story to somebody so they won't forget? One of the saddest verses in all the Bible is the very beginning of Exodus. Joseph had done amazing things, and God had spared his people again. And the very beginning of Exodus says, and there was a generation that grew up who did not know Joseph and the works of God. A whole generation had passed, and nobody even knew what God had done anymore. And so maybe, maybe, maybe we need to celebrate more and shout more and get excited more and tell our stories more. God still does miraculous turnarounds. Our decisions affect other people, and we need to celebrate what God does in our lives. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you still do miraculous turnarounds, God, and that I wasn't a lost cause. I thank you that you gave me Jesus to die on the cross so that I don't have to be headed for death anymore. I still got my issues and I'm not doing everything right, but I know this. I know that Jesus intervened on my behalf and I don't have to go to death and hell anymore. God, I just pray for every man in the room, every husband, 
every father. I, I just pray that we would choose you. We would lead well, spiritually lead our homes and our families, recognizing our decisions affect other people. God, thank you for sending Jesus to the cross. Help us to never forget that and to never get bored with it and stop celebrating it, God. Thank you for that. You're so good to us. Much, much better than we deserve. Nobody looking around. Everybody's heads are bowed. If you're here today and, you know, you would say, man, Jason, you've been talking about a lot of stuff about the cross and death and all that stuff. And I don't know what it all means exactly, or maybe I do, but I, I just know that as you've been talking, I felt something on my heart and kind of nudging on my heart. And you know, I don't even know what it all means. I just know that I think I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. I'm ready to believe in Jesus. We're not going to embarrass you this morning. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come down front or anything like that. But in just a second, I'm going to ask you if you want to give your life to Christ to raise your hand and just make eye contact with me, and then we're going to pray together. That's it, really. It's not raising your hand that does it or even saying certain words in a prayer that does it. It's just when you believe with your heart, you know what? I need Jesus in my life and I want to live. I want to live for him. And you accept that, that you are a believer in Christ or a Christian. So nobody's looking around. And if you're here this morning and you would say, Jason, I'm ready to put my faith in Christ. I know I still got issues. I still, I know I got, I got junk in my life. And man, Jesus is going to do a lot of work on me, but... I'm ready to put my faith in Christ and receive what Jesus did on the cross. If that's you, would you just lift your hand and make eye contact with me? Yeah, yeah, they're coming to you. Just hang right there. They're going to give you a bag. That's it. We're not going to embarrass you. I promise. Yeah. When they come to you and hand you the bag, you can just put your hand down. Anybody else? Hands going up everywhere. Yeah. Anybody else? You'd say, man, I want to I, I I put my faith in Christ. I'm tired of doing it my way. My way's not working. I've tried my way, but man, I'm ready to I'm ready to give my faith, my life to Christ. Everybody, look at me. We're gonna pray a prayer together. It's gonna be a simple prayer. You're gonna repeat it after me. It's gonna feel like you're back in children's church or you know school or whatever. But we're just gonna repeat a prayer together so we can give some confidence and boldness to those who um, lifted their hands. And uh, maybe you didn't lift your hand. You're not disqualified forever, but you know, you're just kind of scared or afraid. Or, but man, if you didn't lift your hand, but you want to receive Christ, if you mean these words, if you mean these words from your heart, Jesus Christ is going to save you today. He's going to save you, all right? So will everybody just pray this prayer with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I needed it. I'm a sinner. The next time I fall, help me to get up and run to you and not away from you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Leah, I don't know if we have that slide back there, but if we do, could you throw that up, the slide about the salvations? Maybe not. We had a, somebody get sick in the back. But if you raised your hand today and you gave your life to Christ, there's some information in that bag we want you to have. Most importantly, just that card that says, hey, I'm making a fresh start today for Jesus. And uh, give that to um, somebody as you walk out today, um, somebody that will be standing in the back and they can help you. Um, Take that next step. And if we can do anything to help you, gosh, we will. We will do it. Anything. If you need a Bible, if you need somebody to talk to, you need somebody to pray with, whatever it is, don't let this be the end. Let this be the start of God doing something great in your life. All right? I love you guys. Corey's going to close us out.